Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. We're going to be focusing on loving-kindness meditation today. We're going to be discussing first the three poisons just as a way to kind of review and kind of deepen our community's knowledge around the three poisons, which will help us understand why we're actually doing loving-kindness meditation. And then we're going to talk about loving-kindness meditation and actually do a session of meditation, which is going to include breathing mindfulness meditation as well as loving-kindness meditation. These sessions are designed for you to learn the teachings and practice the teachings today as we're doing meditation together, and more importantly, get help with anything that's going on in your practice whether it's breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, understanding the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Three Poisons, the Ten Fetters, the Natural Law of Gamma, the Cycle of Rebirth. This week we're exploring the chapter of True Love, Love Without Attachment. So if there's anything that you would like to discuss or talk about there, Since we had our session on Sunday, there may have been some thoughts or reflections that you've had from the talk or in your reading that you may want to get some clarification from. And this is a perfect opportunity to do that as we progress here in our learning session today. So let's get started with exploring the three poisons and just kind of reviewing some of the things that we've taught in our other sessions because the three poisons are really kind of helping to guide your practice in a certain way and really helps you to understand why we're actually doing loving kindness meditation. So the three poisons, essentially they're described as greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, anger, and ignorance. I also use for this last poison, the unknowing of true reality. And we'll explain why I use that here in a little bit. Essentially, what Gautama Buddha discovered with the mind is that there's essentially three problems with the mind. There's one primary problem, but then there's kind of two other problems that he discovered. And not only did he explain to us how these problems create issues in our life, but he also gave us the antidotes or the solutions to these poisons. Some people call these the three unwholesome roots or the three fires because what we're essentially working to do is we're trying to antidote these poisons or eliminate these poisons. We're trying to uproot these unwholesome roots or we're trying to extinguish these fires 
these three problems of greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, anger, and ignorance. Essentially what greed or craving is, the mind has a tendency to search outside of itself for satisfaction. You know, it wants that new job, and if I just get that new job, I will be satisfied. And the mind is for a period of time, but once that wears off, then the mind reverts back to having other complications or just crave something else like a new car or a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new house, a new pair of shoes. And the mind essentially just has this burning desire, this unquenchable thirst, this craving in order to seek out these objects of our desires and looking for satisfaction but it really never truly finds it because it's just on to one craving after another after another. And this other aspect of craving is that the mind essentially has this mental longing and this strong eagerness where it latches on to something and it just can't let it go. And it's not until the mind eliminates that mental longing and strong eagerness where the mind can be calm and peaceful and content with joy. So essentially, our mind becomes discontent because of this craving, because of this desire, this outward seeking for satisfaction, and this constant pursuit of cravings. Whereas if we use the antidotes that the Buddha gave us, which we'll talk about next, you can actually cut off this poison, you can antidote this poison, you can uproot this wholesome root, you can put out this fire of this greed and craving, this burning desire. So craving is the primary problem that the Buddha discovered, and that's what leads to discontentness of the mind. It's also the fuel that causes rebirth. If by the end of your life, you still have these burning desires and you still have these cravings, then that's the fuel that creates the conditions for rebirth. So there will be rebirth if there's still craving at the time of death. And the goal is not to have rebirth because while there are certain things in this human life that we've enjoyed and we've appreciated and, and that we like, in reality, the way that the Buddha saw it is that life is somewhat miserable to a certain point. We experience sickness, we experience aging, we experience death, we experience sorrows and sadness and frustrations and irritations and guilt and shame and fears and loneliness and boredom. And all of these discontent emotions and feelings can be used as motivation and encouragement to help you actually learn and practice these teachings. It's only in this realm, in the human realm, that we experience all three feelings of discontentness and we have the ability as human beings to learn and cultivate our consciousness. So we have kind of a built-in motivation in order to learn and practice these teachings. And the primary goal is to cut off this craving and cut off this constant thirst for desire, for outward satisfaction, these mental longing with a strong eagerness. So this is our greed and craving. So the way that the Buddha gives us to actually antidote this or resolve this is breathing mindfulness meditation. 
This is the constant daily practice that we do in order to remedy this poison. We train the mind to let go of thoughts as thoughts of the past or thoughts of the future or just miscellaneous ideas or perceptions come into the mind. We focus on the breath and we let those thoughts go. We eliminate those thoughts from the mind and just kind of cut them off proactively eliminating them from the mind and really focusing on the breath. And by doing this over multiple sessions, you accumulate this benefit where the mind constantly gets used to letting go of thoughts. It realizes that the mind slowly, gradually realizes over multiple sessions that you are not the thoughts. Whatever thoughts that you're having, that's not you. That's not who you are. The mind starts to slowly understand in permanence more and more that there is no thought or situation that is actually permanent. So breathing mindfulness meditation is the way to antidote this greed or craving. And then also he gave us the teachings of generosity. By practicing generosity or sharing, then we learn not to kind of accumulate and hold on to things. Because what we have a tendency to do in the unenlightened state when we have this poison, this unwholesome root, this fire, we tend to accumulate things. We accumulate possessions, we accumulate resources or money, we accumulate ego, we tend to hold on to things very tightly. And the more that we hold on to things in daily life, the more discontent the mind is going to be. So by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation to train the mind to let go, but also practicing generosity or sharing, then we're training the mind through sharing of our time, of our effort, of our resources to let go. And while we realize that we're on this independent journey on this path to enlightenment, we also recognize this interconnectivity of all the beings in the world that by us sharing our time, our effort, our energy, our resources, it actually benefits other people. And that we're in this life not to just kind of fulfill our selfish desires and these unquenchable thirst for cravings and our desires, but we can also share. And by doing so, it actually helps to train the mind to eliminate this greed or craving, this tendency for the mind to hold on. And what you'll notice, the more that you extinguish this unwholesome root, this poison, this, this fire, is what you'll notice is the more you eliminate this burning desire, this mental longing and strong eagerness, is the mind will go from anger to frustration to irritation to annoyance to eventually you get to the point where you don't have any of those feelings whatsoever because you're able to just let things go. So when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you just let it go and you're just like, okay, I'm safe. No reason to get bent out of shape about it. Or if somebody says something to you that is hostile or unkind or impolite, you just let it go because you've trained the mind so well through breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity that you just let it go. You recognize that that's their hostile speech. That's them just being angry, has nothing to do with you. So even if they're calling you out to your face or online or something like this, you just let it go. Or if you have a certain interest to see a family member or a loved one to do something in life, you realize that, you know, that's just your expectation 
and you just train the mind to let it go and just let them do whatever they feel they need to do in life rather than kind of holding on to these expectations, these things that you want for other people, you start practicing true love, which is just allowing people to exist as they are and just love them as they are and not having this burning desire to change everybody and get everybody to do things the way that you expect for them to do them. Because if we hold on to those expectations and obligations for other people, then what we're going to find is that the mind is always discontent because there's no way that anybody can ever meet our expectations or meet the obligations that we feel that other people should meet. And where we transform this in the mind is we start becoming more encouraging, more supportive, more uplifting, where we might encourage people, we might support people, we might give people suggestions, but when they choose not to take our suggestions, we're okay with that because we've trained the mind away from this poison of greed or craving. So it's very beneficial for your life and for your practice, for your mind, you will see more and more peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy because the mind's not holding on so tightly with all these expectations and obligations for yourself or for other people or for various situations. You can train the mind to actually be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations because it doesn't need anything. It doesn't want anything. If the mind has this burning desire, these wants, then it's always going to be wanting something and wanting something and wanting something. It's never satisfied. But if you can train away this poison of greed or craving, then the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it doesn't want anything. It just satisfies its needs. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need clothing, we need medical supplies, but everything else is kind of optional, right? And we just pursue these kind of five things that we need to sustain our life. We just pursue those as a goal and an objective and as an interest. So you can't have craving if you're going to work towards enlightenment. You can't even crave enlightenment. Some people as they get closer and closer to enlightenment, they actually start craving this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, and it causes the mind to be discontent. So it's important that you work to eliminate this craving on all fronts and notice it when it comes up. Because if you notice it, then you can work to eliminate it. And then that's where the mind becomes more peaceful, more calm. You'll start noticing that stress will just dissipate. You'll notice that the body becomes very light because you're not carrying this heavy burden of all these cravings and the mind will just be more free. This is why we call it liberation. The mind will be liberated from these constant cravings. Okay. Any questions on any of that? We have a couple of questions from Amina. Okay. So uh, Amina asks, this morning when meditating, I kept thinking about my to-do list for the day rather than having success in cutting my thoughts and clearing my mind. But I kept up with the meditation because I imagine it's better to have the chance to calm the body and the breath 
And also, in the past, you have shared we should not have an attachment as to how the meditation goes. So even my attempts at meditating is better than not. Is that right? My guess is that it's better to have three seconds of cutting off thoughts a few times a day than not at all. I agree with that. Yeah, any amount of time that you are working to cut off your thoughts and eliminate the holding on and just letting your thoughts go, the goal would be to have a dedicated, independent, active training session of the mind where you have a period of time, right? And that period of time might be 5, 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever you end up having. But if you get started and for one reason or another you need to stop, then it's better that you at least attempted than not attempting at all. For example, this morning with me, Amina, I started meditating and probably three minutes into it, my son came and he said, Daddy, Daddy, we need you to come with us to to go get some new tires for the truck. Mommy asked me to come get you. So I went and talked to my wife and she said, no, I just let our son know to tell you that we're leaving. We don't actually need you to come with us. So after that, I just went back to meditation. So yeah, any amount of time because the benefits of meditation are cumulative, right? All these benefits of meditating accumulate over multiple sessions. So it's not like there's this one fixed absolute time that if everybody does meditation for 30 minutes a day, they will get enlightened in one year, right? It's not a fixed absolute like that. It's a constant accumulation of benefits over multiple, multiple, multiple sessions. So whatever amount of time you can dedicate, that's great. The more time, the better, especially in our role as household practitioners, because oftentimes we find ourselves just trying to sustain life. We work, we have children, we have to take care of our house, we have to take out the trash, we talk to the neighbors, we you know, have all these activities, family members and all these things, and we have to actually have a self-discipline where we set aside time to actually meditate. So if you can get any amount of time, I think that's very well spent. So I would agree with what you're sharing, Amina. Great, okay, and there's a second question from Amina. So. While in meditation, we are working on opposite ways of controlling. Let me explain. We are training ourselves to not control the breath and letting it ebb and flow naturally, while also working on controlling the mind and cutting off thoughts. Therefore, it made me think that somewhere in in there, there is a balance or the middle way, because those opposite controlling efforts, we are working towards creating calm, serene moments. Is that part of the teachings? Uh, Yes, I think you might be dissecting it a little bit too much. Sometimes as we practice these teachings, we sometimes overthink them. I'm not sure exactly if that's what you're doing, Mina, but it sounds like it may be. So just focus on at the beginning, and we'll do this today as a group, is focus on establishing the breath and just a natural, nice evenness of breath and evenness, uh, natural breath. And then bring the mind to the breath, to the awareness of that breath. And if any thoughts come into the mind, just keep focused on that breath, cutting those thoughts and letting them go. Just stay focused on the breath. We have a question from Mercia, and it's regarding uh, the talk on true love that we had on Sunday, and in particular, uh, her relationship with her late parents. So Mercia asks, 
Uh, in Sunday's teaching, David placed a great emphasis on parents. Both my parents have passed away and I have some regrets I did not honor. She says she has some regrets regarding her mum in that I did not treat her as well as I should have. I feel I collected some karma from this. In meditation, I've mm -hmm. asked for forgiveness from her numerous times. But is there anything else I can do? Okay, let's talk about a couple of things. The first one is when you're meditating, it's not meant to ask for forgiveness from people. Meditation is an active, independent, dedicated training session for the mind, where you're either training the mind to eliminate certain qualities or you're cultivating certain qualities in the mind. So with breathing mindfulness meditation, we're training the mind to eliminate the unwholesome quality of greed or craving. And with loving kindness meditation, we're training it to cultivate this wholesome quality of loving kindness or active goodwill. So that's meditation. Since you have these concerns about not treating your mom well, then if I was you, what you need to do is definitely keep focusing on breathing mindfulness meditation because you need to let those thoughts go, right? That is your gamma. You talked about you've generated some unwholesome gamma because of this. And yes, part of that unwholesome gamma of not treating your mom well was probably during her life. Maybe you guys didn't have very good relationship, but then now that she's died, you're left with these thoughts. That is your unwholesome gamma. Essentially, gamma is cause and effect or action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. So your decisions at one time, because you didn't have the guidance that you needed and you didn't have the teachings you needed of how to treat your mom well, your action was that you didn't treat your mom well. The result was you guys didn't have as good of a relationship and now you're left with these residual thoughts and feelings. But what you have to recognize with the mind is you can't go back and fix those. You can't change that. That's letting go of the past and bringing your mind into the middle to the present moment. Breathing mindfulness meditation would be really, really helpful for you as well as loving kindness meditation. So I'm glad you're with us today because there's probably a little bit of guilt associated with the feelings that you're having based on the past. So these two meditations work really well to help you eliminate that. But because it's an accumulated benefit, it's not going to be a one-time shot and done. It's going to take many, many, many sessions for you to eliminate this craving and cultivate this loving kindness. So in your meditation on a daily basis, you should be doing both of these and make sure you include your mom in the loving kindness meditation, not because you're sending her loving kindness, but because you need to cultivate it for yourself and you need to let that go and eliminate it. So when we get to loving kindness meditation, I will talk about this, how you can incorporate your mom into it to make sure that you have that for your own personal practice. We have a question from William Allendorf. He's asking about listening to music whilst meditating and he's actually asked some specifics but I think maybe the, um, you might want to just talk generally about music David and whether listening to music is a good idea whilst meditating. Sure so keep in mind the goal of breathing mindfulness meditation and this is the primary meditation right these are the only two that everybody needs is breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation so 
when you're doing these two meditations, the goal of breathing mindfulness meditation is to let go of the past, let go of the future, bring the mind into the present moment so that you eliminate the mind's tendency to hold on to thoughts, ideas, and perceptions. You're eliminating that craving, that tendency of the mind to hold on and just focus on the breath. So if you're listening to music during meditation, the mind's just essentially maybe letting go of the thoughts, but it's grasping and holding on to something else. It's holding on to the music. So you've just essentially replaced the thoughts with something else. You haven't actually trained the mind to let go of anything. You're actually training it to just grasp something else. Rather than grasp onto the thoughts, grasp onto the music. So I don't suggest or encourage you to use music during meditation at all. You might have been using it in the past, and that's what got you to this point where you're now learning more teachings more deeply. But if you can slowly eliminate that from your practice, and what you may need to do is, is use it you know, once and then meditate without it for two or three sessions and then again you know meditate for two or three sessions use it again but slowly create more and more space five days 10 days 20 days where you're not using music at all i suggest 80 to 90 percent of your meditation should just be the body the mind and the breath because these are the only three things that you actually need to meditate and if you meditate in this way then you can meditate anywhere at any time. It's not hooked on to music or an app or gongs or even like keeping track of the time. Sometimes our mind gets fixed on that and just watching the time or mantras or just certain things playing in the background. So you need to train the mind to let go of everything because if you can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, with just the body, the mind, and the breath, and you can do that over multiple sessions for extended periods of time, then when you're outside and the sun's shining on you, it's like, oh wow, the sun's shining, or oh wow, it's raining, or oh wow, the wind's blowing. Everything becomes very joyful because you've trained your mind to just be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy with nothing. It doesn't need anything, no music, no gongs, no nothing. With that said, that 80 to 90% of the time that you're training the mind in this way, just the body, the mind, and the breath, all by yourself, you know, that 10 or 20% of the time, if you decide to join a group or a community and meditate, or you decide to join a gong or sound bath meditation, or you decide once in a while to add some music and just kind of see how that feels, that's fine. But just be sure you stay focused on the goal that 80 to 90% of the time, body, mind, and breath. Thanks, David. No more questions. Okay. So let's go into our second poison here, which is hatred or anger. This shows up on the list of our 10 fetters as ill will. This is the quality of the mind that essentially generates things like frustration, irritation, annoyance, and we need to eliminate this because essentially what this poison does is we essentially deny, resist, and push away certain feelings and certain people in our life, and we kind of wall ourselves off. 
because the mind from that first poison has this craving, this desire, it wants certain things. And what does it want? It really wants to be pleased all the time. The mind doesn't like to be displeased. And when it is displeased, the mind has a tendency to react with hostility or anger or hatred or ill will. And essentially it starts walling itself off from various situations, from various people, from various experiences, thinking that by walling itself off, this is what's going to create the contentedness. It thinks that if these people disagree with me, if I just push them away and wall them off, then I can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content, or we use the word happy. A lot of people use the word happy. I'll be happy if these people are just out of my life. But in reality, what you've done is you've just have aversion where you're pushing people away, you're creating enemies, you have this fear, this kind of internal fear that these things popping up in your life are going to cause complications for you. And the mind is uncomfortable with dealing with this difficult situation. It doesn't like these people who maybe if you're vegetarian, it doesn't like being around people who eat meat. So you kind of push them all away and you don't even want to see anybody eat meat and you can't stand seeing people eat meat because there's this hatred and anger that arises and you essentially just push them away. And it's essentially because the mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in every and all situations. An enlightened mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy under all situations. And it's not going to see somebody eating meat as, oh, I got to hate these people because they eat meat and I don't. Or in a situation where you see somebody talking maybe a little bit rudely or unprofessional, you may decide like, oh, I don't like this guy. He's always talking unprofessional. I don't want to be around him, right? And we essentially wall people off and it creates kind of enemies in our life. It creates conflict and we can't find ways to just peacefully coexist with all beings because of this poison of hatred or anger, this ill will, this frustration and irritation and annoyance. But if we eliminate this craving and always expecting things to be our way, then this poison of hatred and anger becomes less and less and less. So here to remedy this poison or uproot this unwholesome root or extinguish this fire, what we do is we practice loving kindness meditation. And that's what we're going to do today. And this is why we actually practice breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation together a lot of times because we first need to kind of bring the mind to the breath, be focused and centered on the breath, cutting off this craving, this greed, this mind's tendency to hold on. And then we need to cultivate this active goodwill, this loving kindness, this active goodwill towards all beings where we have a genuine interest and seeing all beings be well. Not just the people that we agree with, not just our friends, not just the people that we like, but all beings, everybody, not just humans, but also animals as well. So loving kindness meditation is the way that we cultivate this quality in the mind to reduce and ultimately eliminate this poison. And then just like 
with craving we practice generosity in daily life of sharing with hatred and anger we practice loving kindness in daily life as a meditation we practice loving kindness meditation to cultivate this active goodwill this genuine interest in seeing other people be well but we don't just do it in meditation because that's not an enlightened being is not going to just be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy and meditation. An enlightened being isn't going to just have loving kindness during meditation. It's going to take that cultivated mind state, that cultivated mental state, and carry it with you in daily life. So now you practice active goodwill towards all beings in daily life. And that shows up in lots of different ways. When you see various people, you might smile, you might be polite, you might talk friendly. When you see people being hostile, you don't get frustrated or angry with them. You just recognize that that's their practice. You can be a genuinely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations because this anger isn't arising. This frustration isn't arising. But because you're not there yet, you haven't yet attained this mental state of enlightenment, you're on the path. So you are going to experience some annoyances and some frustrations and irritations and maybe even anger, hatred and ill will might be coming to the mind. So that's why you dedicate yourself to a daily practice of loving kindness meditation to cultivate this active goodwill and then practice it in all situations, whether it's with family members, with your children, with janitors in a mall, with restaurant workers, with doctors, with nurses, with everybody in everyone that you come in contact with, you just always actively work on practicing this active goodwill and genuine interest for others to be well. And I'm going to show you the meditation that we use in order to eliminate this poison of hatred, anger, and this fetter of ill will. Because in order to attain the second stage of enlightenment, you need to actually thin, kind of start to reduce this poison, this fetter of ill will. And to attain the third stage of enlightenment, you need to actually eliminate it entirely. So in the first stage of enlightenment, there's still going to be some anger, some hatred, a little bit of ill will. The second stage of enlightenment, you're going to thin it out. It's not going to be very prominent. It just kind of arises every once in a while. And then by the time you get to the third stage of enlightenment, you've completely eliminated this fetter along with the other lower fetters to attain the third stage of enlightenment. And then by the time you get to the fourth stage of enlightenment, you've already eliminated the five lower fetters and you're just working on the upper five fetters. So this particular poison is really important to address, get a handle on by being less angered, less hatred, less ill will, less hostility by not walling people off in your life then you're open to all possibilities. You're open to all people. You're friendly with all people. You're kind with all people. You're loving with all people. You're polite, respectful with all people. Oftentimes in our culture, we say, this person needs to earn my respect, right? We say, we have to earn my respect. 
Well, if someone's earning your respect, that means you have to judge them first before you give them respect. And we shouldn't be judging people. What an enlightened being is going to do is not kind of judge somebody and decide if they've earned my respect. What an enlightened person is going to do is just respect everybody. Just respect everybody with friendliness, with politeness, with kindness, right? That's what an enlightened person is going to do. They're not going to hold on to their respect and only give it out to the people who they deem worthy of this respect. In fact, an enlightened person is not going to hold on to anything. They're just going to give it away. Because by respecting lots and lots of people, by being friendly, by being polite, by being kind, because of the natural law of gamma, action and result, whatever you put out, it's going to come back to you. So if you're being polite and friendly and kind and peaceful and respectful to everybody around you, what you're going to notice is more and more of that's going to come back to you. You don't do these things because you're expecting it to come back. You do these things because they're right and they're wholesome and they're good, they're well-intentioned. But what you're going to notice is by the more that you do this, it's going to come back to you. Sure, there's people that disrespect enlightened people. Sure, there's people that talk hostile to enlightened people. Sure, there's people that are aggressive to enlightened people. But that's them. That's their practice. Nobody knows who's enlightened until you learn more and more about enlightenment and you can actually identify who's enlightened and who's not. People don't go around and just, oh, he's enlightened. He's got a badge. Let me respect him. Even enlightened people, they're going to have people that disrespect them. But that's just because that person has these three poisons still in the mind. But an enlightened person isn't going to feel any feelings whatsoever about this person who's being hostile and disrespectful other than maybe having loving kindness and compassion for that person because they recognize their misery. They recognize their suffering. They recognize how discontent they are because they're being hostile for no reason whatsoever. So the more you eliminate this anger and hatred, this pushing people away, this walling people off, by practicing politeness, kindness, respectfulness, what you're going to notice is more and more people are going to be that way with you. And this is where your personal life and your professional life is just going to blossom and become better and better and better. And you'll have more and more opportunities in life to do all the various things that it is that you would like to do. And they'll happen with ease. This is why an enlightened person's life become so peaceful, so calm, so serene, and so content with joy because they're not harming other people, so therefore harm doesn't come to them. They're being very friendly, very polite, very open. They're speaking very politely, and because of that, no harm comes to them. And even if someone becomes hostile towards them, they don't attach to it. They don't hold on to it. They don't experience discontentness because of it. So the more you practice loving-kindness meditation and you practice loving-kindness in daily life, this active goodwill, this genuine interest in seeing others be well, the more that you will recognize that as you practice this, it will be returned to you through others reciprocating because of the natural law of gamma. Do we have any questions on this particular poison, Max?
I have a question. So how might we skillfully help, say, a friend with their anger? So say they have a conflict with a work colleague or something and they've come to see you and they're really angry about this colleague. But how can we help them without necessarily bolstering their view that this other person is bad or wrong somehow, but still soothe them and help them come to see it more clearly? It really depends how well you understand the teachings and how well you might be able to communicate with them, right? If somebody is really angry and hostile and they're still discontent because of the situation, it's not the right time to teach them. They've got to calm down. They've got to bring their mind down. They've got to just let it all out. You know, just let them get the anger out. Just sit there and say nothing. Sometimes saying nothing is the best thing you can do. And just let them get it all out. If they're actually seeking guidance and they're asking you help, then maybe you decide to help them if you feel like you're able to. But if they haven't asked you for help, it's not a good situation to actually try to start helping them because they're going to be resistant to it. And if you have a craving to help them and you're trying to push it and push it and push it and they're resisting it, you're both just going to get discontent in each other now because you're trying to help them so much and even you've got loving kindness and compassion and you might even have the answers. If they're resistant to it, there's no way you're gonna get through that wall because someone who's so angry, remember what they're doing is they're putting up a wall. They're putting up a wall around themselves. So even when they're angry and they've calmed down for five, 10 minutes or even an hour, it might not be the right time to actually talk to them about these teachings. You might wanna wait a couple days and say, you know, the other day you came to see me and you're pretty angry. You might want to read this book, <laughs> Developing a Life Practice, yeah. <laughs> The Path that, that, that Leads to Nirvana. You might want to join this Facebook group, you know, because one of the things that can happen is the more you start seeing benefit with this, people oftentimes want to run out and share it with everybody. But what I encourage people to do is just stay focused on your own practice. The more you go out and start trying to help everybody right at the beginning, the more and more people that are coming to you for help, it's just gonna detract from your practice and your time to practice. One of the biggest obstacles for household practitioners is having time to actually practice the teachings. So if you kind of load up your day with helping all of these people, even though that's a great intention and a great thing to do, what you're gonna find is more and more and more time, you're not gonna be able to actually practice the teachings. This happened to me when I lived in America. I had lots of students and lots of employees and lots of people around me and I was spending all this time helping everyone else, but I didn't have the time for myself. And I wasn't even meditating for a couple of years and man, my life got really difficult and really hard until I figured out what was going wrong and I rededicated myself to what I was doing. And that's when things really blossomed, when I just focused on my own practice. So I'm here for you guys, but I'm also here for your friends and your family and everybody else. If you'd like to send them to the Facebook group or if you wanna send them the link and have them download it, 
that I think is probably the most loving and compassionate thing you can do is hook them up with somebody that can actually help them. That way you can stay focused on your practice. And then the beauty in that is if you got more friends and family around you that are learning and practicing these teachings from the same source, you guys can then support each other and encourage each other along this path rather than you kind of taking on this teaching role too early you can actually have me continue to do that and support them and support you and you can just stay focused on your work and your learning and your liberation you don't want anything to stand in the way thank you really helpful william asks how do i handle a situation when i'm offered wine well Everybody has to decide for themselves how they actually handle a situation like that. There's lots of right answers. There's 10 million right answers, and there's certain answers that you may consider wrong. If you're on this path to enlightenment, what you're doing is you've made a conscious decision that I'm going to train my mind to be enlightened. And what enlightenment is, is it's a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where you've purified the mind of these three poisons. You've eliminated these three poisons. And an enlightened mind is going to experience focus, clarity of mind, concentration, and an increased ability to memorize things. It has deep memorization. So in that picture, someone who's working to create a mind that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, that's eliminating these poisons, that is working to train the mind to be focused, concentrated, clear, and have deep memorization. If someone's made that conscious choice, to me, there really is no place in my life for something like wine or beer or whiskey, because that essentially is polluting the mind. I started viewing alcohol as poison. And at one time, yes, I drank alcohol, I drank plenty of it, and I experienced that. But eventually I extinguished that craving for alcohol over a period of time. And I don't, I don't know if you guys are interested to know how I did that, but it was through indulging way too much for way too many times and being bent over a toilet for way too many hours on way too many weekends and having intense stomach pains for multiple, multiple, multiple days over multiple weekends. So that was enough training to my mind that I can not ingest this poison of alcohol. So if somebody offered me a glass of wine today, I would just find a polite way to, to say no. Um, I would probably say, oh, do you have a glass of water? I would love to have a glass of water rather than saying, no, I don't want wine. I'm practicing to be a Buddhist and I want to be enlightened and I don't want wine, right? This is like, right? So I would look at a positive way to put some positive words towards it. I might even say thank you to them. I might say, oh, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. I'm curious, do you have maybe some water or some fruit juice? I would love to have some of that if you've got it right? And then they're going to respond however they respond. You know, in some settings, you may even get joked at. They may even laugh at you. I've, I've been laughed at many a times uh, going into uh, situations where people were all drinking and I'm the only person drinking water and everyone else has got whiskey and beer and everything else. And I'm just perfectly calm and content drinking my water because I know what all that other stuff does to my body and to my mind and I'm not interested in it. 
And no matter how much they joke me, I'm just perfectly calm and content drinking my water because I know in about six hours, all of them are going to be knocked out. Tomorrow, they're going to possibly be vomiting and I'm going to be off drinking my water, drinking my orange juice, meditating and having a good old life rather than being bent over a toilet. So when someone offers you something that is opposite of what you're choosing to do, just find nice, polite, kind ways to show them what it is you would like from them rather than going into this long spiel of why it is that you don't want the wine. Just focus on what it is that you would like. And from my experience, people in that situation who's offering you wine, they're essentially trying to please you. And they think that a glass of wine will be pleasing for you. They're being polite. They're being friendly. And for them, offering you a glass of wine is being polite and being friendly. So if you show them what it is that it is that you're really interested in, which is fruit juice or water or a smoothie or something else, then they're always obliged to offer that to you and say, oh, I didn't realize you don't drink wine. Oh, okay, sure. We've got some water or sure. We've got some orange juice. I've never had anybody that was like, no, you have to drink this wine. And if you don't drink it, then you're not welcome in my house. Right. I don't know people that do that. And if there are people that do that, I probably wouldn't be interested in being in their house. So at that point, I would probably just politely, you know, show myself to the door and, and say goodbye. So just find polite, nice, kind ways to let them know what it is that you would like to drink. And I think you'll find the vast majority of people would be happy to offer that to you. Okay, we have no more questions at this time. Okay, so going into the third poison of delusion or ignorance, I also call this the unknowing of true reality. Essentially what this poison is, is this is our mind's unknowing of the teachings of the Buddha. Because the mind isn't aware of these teachings, it therefore has problems. It therefore, all of these problems that we encounter in daily life, we start to have various problems in life and we don't understand why. We don't understand why our children are talking bad to us. We don't understand why this friend who used to be a friend seems like they're being hostile with us. We don't understand why we lost our job. We don't understand why COVID-19 hit. We don't understand why we have this anger, why we have this frustration. We don't understand all these various teachings that the Buddha shared with us. And because of our wrong understanding, then what happens is we just stay stuck in this unenlightened mind and we experience continuous anger, frustration, hostility, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment. We just essentially are inundated with all these various discontent feelings. And it's not until you actually learn the teachings of the Buddha that are independently verifiable right? There's nothing that the Buddha taught that is based on belief. He never told anybody, just believe me, just follow me. And if you believe me, everything will work out in the end. He didn't say that. He said, learn these teachings, practice these teachings, and you will see the truth for yourself. That truth that you see through independently verifying his teachings, once you've had guidance from a teacher, 
you can then independently verify his teachings that they are indeed truth. You can see that you are causing your own anger, your own frustration, your own irritation, your own annoyance. You're causing the boredom and the loneliness, all the other discontent feelings. And when you see that and you can see how to eliminate it, you know the Buddha's Four Noble Truths are 100% truth. Now you have wisdom. This wisdom is the antidote that becomes the way that the mind becomes enlightened. Because before studying Gautama Buddha's teachings, we walk around thinking that everyone else is causing us to be angry, right? It's my wife that made me angry. It's her fault. It's my son. He came in with a bad report card. I'm angry now. It's all his fault. If he wouldn't have just got that bad report card. Or my tire was flat today with my car and it's the, the tire's fault. They should have made better tires and somebody left a nail on the street and it punctured the tire and now... It's the tire's fault. Someone, whoever left that nail, it's their fault that I'm angry. No, if you think that way before, that's what the unenlightened mind's going to have. That's delusion. That's ignorance. That's unknowing of true reality. But the more you learn these teachings of the Buddha, you awaken the mind through independently observing these truths. You gain wisdom and this wisdom liberates the mind more and more and more that you now start functioning through this wisdom in a different way. So you start learning these teachings, you start applying them in daily life, you start seeing that meditation is working, you start seeing how your mind does have this craving, how it does have this anger, you see how these teachings start working to eliminate this stuff and the mind becomes more and more peaceful and now the mind is awakening with this wisdom that you're learning in the teachings and gradually the mind becomes more and more enlightened or more and more awake. This is how you eliminate this poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality. I prefer to call this the unknowing of true reality because an enlightened being isn't going to refer to somebody as ignorant. We use that kind of in a derogatory way, but I use this word delusion or ignorance because that's what you're going to see in other people if you happen to pick up a book or you talk with other practitioners about these teachings. They'll tend to use this word delusion or ignorance, but I use the word unknowing of true reality because the mind is essentially unaware. It's unknowing of these good, wholesome teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts. It doesn't even know that there is such a thing as three poisons. It doesn't know, it's not aware of this natural law of gamma and that how the natural law of gamma works. It's not aware of how to practice true love. It thinks that love is actually craving and showing how much I want to be with you so much and I just need to have you in my life and if you're not in my life, I'm going to fall apart and my life's going to become horrible. I just want you in my life so badly. That's craving, that's desire, that's attachment. That's not true love. So the mind is affected and afflicted with this poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality on so many different topics that it stays in this unenlightened state and it can't realize this natural existence of the enlightened mind. And that's why we keep having all these complications in life 
where we just keep being angry and sad and frustrated and bored and lonely and these feelings just keep repeating themselves over and over and over and we just can't figure out why and it's because we haven't learned these teachings to acquire wisdom so by learning these teachings and not believing what i say don't believe what you read set up a practice where you take these teachings you apply them in daily life you will then see their truth that will become wisdom and now the mind will function more and more peacefully and become more enlightened because you're now know that things like drinking alcohol leads to bad things and you'll make a choice with this new wisdom that I'm not going to drink alcohol. You'll know that stealing and lying and sexual misconduct and all of these things leads to unwholesome results and with this wisdom you'll stop doing those things over time you'll learn that having aggressive speech and hostile speech and being unkind to people and being rude and disrespectful and holding back your respect you will learn with wisdom that by doing these things it causes unwholesome results for you and with this new wisdom you will start deciding to slowly practice speaking at the right time what you say is true you'll speak gently You'll speak in a beneficial way. You'll speak with a mind of loving kindness. You'll stop blaming other people for the problems that you encounter and you'll take responsibility for these problems and you'll start functioning in the world very differently. And slowly but surely, you'll have better and better relationships both personally and professionally and your life will open up and blossom more and more and more and more. But it requires you to learn with things like a book, with things like the videos and the podcast and the quizzes, these talks that I do on Wednesday and Sunday, you will slowly start to awaken the mind the more you learn these teachings and apply them in daily life. So that's the antidote to this particular poison is learning and practicing the teachings to acquire wisdom. There is no meditation here because you're doing meditation in the other two poisons this particular poison gets remedied by learning, practicing to see the truth, and then you have wisdom. And this is why in the Gautama Buddha's teachings, he's always referring to a wise person. He will say, a wise person will do this. The wise do this, or the wise do that. Or he'll use the word unwise. Essentially, unwise is someone who has the unknowing of true reality. He'll say an unwise person functions this way. Or like the little paragraph I read in our last session about true love, where he talked about if your parents are unwise, in other words, unknowing of true reality, unknowing of these teachings, then you will establish them in wisdom. Slowly, gradually help them learn these teachings to establish them with wisdom. So that's how you remedy this third poison. Any questions on this, Max? We have a question from Bill. Bill asks, would perceptual distortion include what we call contempt prior to investigation? I often find myself becoming upset in situations where I don't have all the info that I wish I had, sometimes due to not speaking Thai very well and having communication breakdowns. 
I'm doing much better in terms of how I respond. Instead of raising my voice and continue to express my frustration, I now get up and walk and wait for the situation to become resolved. That's a good remedy for now, Bill. That's a good way to do it. But in terms of what's actually at play there, it's not this particular poison. What it is is the mind is craving to be able to speak Thai, and it really wants to speak Thai, and it has this desire, this longing to speak Thai. And because it can't, then it becomes angry or frustrated or irritated. So you actually are practicing good wisdom here is that you're recognizing, hey, my mind is discontent. If I continue in this conversation, I'm just going to speak rudely. So let me remove myself from the conversation. And that's potentially a good practice for now. And that's helping you to eliminate and extinguish any unwholesome gamma. As you practice these teachings more and more, and the mind becomes more peaceful, calm, serene, and content, you will learn how to stay in those conversations without becoming angered or frustrated. But what's causing that anger is the craving. And then that leads to the anger. But because you have wisdom, because you have more wisdom now, you've been studying for a few months, you are recognizing this isn't good. It's going to create unwholesome karma. Let me stand up and walk away from the conversation. And that's one of those 10 million right answers that I talk about that in any given situation, there's always 10 million right answers. And you found the particular right answer on that particular day for you is to get up and walk away. And that's great for you. But what you'll notice is more and more you'll be able to actually stay in those conversations. Yeah, Bill actually just um, added some more details around an example. And uh, essentially, Bill was at a hospital recently and um, had to pick up some medication. And they changed the system without informing him or make, making it obvious that they changed it. And so he ended up having to wait longer. So it sounds like, Bill, what you're saying is that the mind was discontent because it's contempt prior to investigation, but because you, there was it, an assumption that something else was going on. When in actual fact, it was that they just changed the system. So what this so is, think, what this is, is this is the mind craving permanence, right? Essentially, what the Buddha discovered is the mind doesn't like impermanence. So Bill kind of showed up and he was kind of, his mind was expecting, you know, a certain thing and that didn't happen. And when everything changed, that's when the mind became discontent. So that's a confirmation of the second noble truth is that the mind's craving permanence. And then at some point, Bill decided to let that go. He eliminated that and he just accepted. He's like, you know what? It's impermanent. Yeah, they changed the computer system or whatever. I'm just going to have to deal with it. And that's when his mind became content and peaceful on that particular topic. But where Bill would like to get to, I'm sure, is that when he shows up, he realizes the computer system changed or whatever it was that changed. His mind just, oh, okay, so what do I need to do now? Right? And if you keep your mind in the present moment, when you recognize a change, it's like, okay, what do I need to do now? Right. And, and the mind doesn't have that anger or frustration. But because there's still some craving there, because the mind hasn't fully started practicing impermanence and recognizing impermanence, that's what's creating the frustration. But I think Bill's handling this in a good way for now. But the more you meditate and the more you work on this and chip that craving away, you'll see that the anger will also start falling away as well. And you're doing that through 
eliminating this poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality because the more you learn and practice these teachings those things will start to fall away more and more and more yes uh, i suppose with right effort david it's helpful to be aware that if if we are finding it difficult to apply right effort in this kind of momentary way we have to kind of go up a stage okay so I, i struggle to not be grouchy when I'm hungry so what do I do make sure I'm not hungry or do I you know so mm-hmm. we, go, we go up a layer mm-hmm. okay well I know that's a risk therefore I'll make sure I'm taking care of my diet and this sort of thing but in that example there's certainly going to be situations where you are hungry and you just yes. have to train the mind to not be discontent during that time I bet if we asked Bill you know what would he have done a year ago or three years ago in that same situation he probably would have perhaps stood there and been angrier and maybe raised his voice and caused all kinds of problems. Yeah, he's giving me the thumbs up, right? But now through learning and practicing these teachings, he's like, hold on a second. I don't want to go there. I've done that in before and it never turns out well. So let me do something different. And that's why he's chosen what he chose to do something different. And he had different results and he just went off on his own. He dealt with his anger. He dealt with his frustration. And then he came back and reengaged probably with a better mindset. And the more that you do that, the mind will get trained better and better. This is what we call practicing, right? A lot of people think that practicing the teachings is just meditating. They think that that's all that, that it is, is just meditating. But Bill showing up at that hospital and recognizing this problem, the mind becoming discontent and him choosing to step out and let his mind relax and become more peaceful before he re-engage, that's practicing the teachings. That's absolutely practicing the teachings. So he had awareness of mind, which is right mindfulness, and he saw the anger or frustration rising, and he's like, okay, I gotta do something about this, let me cut it off. And at that particular time, he chose to step away. And more and more that you practice that, you'll notice that the anger will be less and less and less. You'll catch it quicker. And then eventually you'll get to the point where it won't even arise because you've done that practice so much of stepping away or other things that you might employ that the anger just won't even arise. You're like, oh, the computer sounds, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, like last uh, Sunday when we all logged into uh, Zoom, Zoom had updated their version and nobody could really use Zoom. And it was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, no reason to get frustrated. Like, okay, there's some change here. There's some problem. And we just moved on with the class. So the mind slowly starts to realize that anger, hostility, frustration, even the slightest annoyance, there's no benefit there. And that doesn't even arise anymore when you experience these changes in life because you're going to experience a ton of changes because of impermanence. Everything's impermanent. It's constantly changing. It's a universal truth. It's the first universal truth. So as soon as you see something's changed, it's kind of like, ah, that makes sense. Okay, what do I need to do now? Oh, I need to fill out these three new forms because the other 10 forms I filled out weren't good enough. Those are in the old system. Okay, I'll fill these out for you. No worries. <laughs> right? And you, you start to kind of like, there's, there's the Buddha again, because the Buddha said, one who sees me sees the teachings. One who sees the teachings sees me. So whenever you see the teachings, whenever you see impermanence, there's the Buddha. 
right? There's the Buddha showing up in your life again. So one who sees me sees the teachings, meaning I'm practicing the teachings. One who sees the teachings sees me. So every time you see impermanence, it's like, oh, there's the Buddha. Just, you know, kind of makes me laugh sometimes when I, <laughs> when I see these teachings. Or when somebody gets hostile or angry or un, unpolite, oh, there's the Buddhist teachings. He's being impolite and yeah, I don't want to talk to him. That's his karma. Uh, I'm not interested in talking to this guy because he's, he's rude and he's hostile. There's the Buddhist teachings. That's karma. He's rude. He's impolite. Yep, nobody wants to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. My mom doesn't want to talk to him. My brother doesn't want to talk to him. Nobody wants to talk to him. Yep, that's his karma. There's the Buddha. <laughs> but you really have to soak these teachings in to get to that point where you just recognize them all the time. Messiah asks, can one use mantras to calm the mind in these situations? Chanting, I think, is good for meditation and leading into meditation and coming out of meditation. But the chanting itself... What it really does is it helps bring awareness to the breath and awareness to the mind. It helps to create a better memory so that you can actually remember and you cultivate better memory and better concentration. But the words themselves, there is no special powers behind the actual mantra itself. So in a situation where like Bill was at the hospital, he's not gonna break out into a mantra in order to train his mind. So. The, the chanting or the mantras are done used offline in order to train the mind in those situations. But the words themselves don't have any real special powers. It's just helping you to train the mind during those active, dedicated training sessions. I have a question about these th the three poisons. So the three poisons are the source of all our unwholesome karma. Now, if we go outside, say, and we step on an insect deliberately, then that would be unwholesome karma. But say we do it by accident. Let me explain it to you here of why this, okay? So Max is 100% correct. These three poisons are what generates all unwholesome results. If there's craving and you move forward with craving, there's going to be unwholesome results because of that. If there's hatred or anger, there's going to be unwholesome results because of that. If you have delusion, ignorance, or unknowing of reality, and you start taking drugs, if you're robbing banks, if you're lying, if you're stealing, if you're doing the things that the Buddha encouraged you not to do, then there's going to be unwholesome results because of it. So all unwholesome karma comes from these three poisons. In the example that Max gave where somebody deliberately kills an insect or an animal. The reason why this is producing unwholesome gamma is because the mind isn't practicing loving kindness and compassion. It's not practicing these good wholesome teachings. It's actively killing. Therefore, there's still this poison in the mind of craving and anger and ignorance. These poisons still exist. So a mind who's actively killing even an insect still has these three poisons that is rooted in the mind. And not only is it going to show up there when you're actively deliberately killing an insect, but it's going to show up in other ways. You're going to be hostile towards other people in other situations, and it's going to show up there as well. And that's 
the unwholesome gamma, where someone who just walks out on their sidewalk and accidentally steps on that same cockroach, they didn't deliberately do it. So the mind hasn't produced the intention to actually do the killing. It was unintentional. So it's that person is practicing active goodwill towards all beings. They're practicing compassion. It just happened to be something that their foot stepped on this cockroach and it just happened to die. But otherwise, they're practicing all these teachings and eliminating these three poisons. So that's why someone who deliberately kills an insect, they still have craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. Therefore, it's going to show up in other parts of their life. And that's where all the unwholesome gamma is being generated. Gamma isn't, I just stepped on this cockroach and killed it. Therefore, I'm going to be killed later. Or I killed this cockroach. Therefore, I'm going to be reborn as a cockroach. Some people say, you know, if you kill a cockroach in this life, you will become a cockroach next life. That's not what gamma is. It's the quality of the mind that's producing certain decisions. And because of those decisions, it has a certain result. So if I'm making the decision to kill, then there's going to be a result of that, meaning that decision to kill the cockroach is just one symptom of this poison that's showing up there, but it's also going to show up in other parts of my life as well. And I'm going to experience the results of that. Does that make sense, Max? Yes, absolutely. And I have a follow-up as well, which is, so I understand it's about intention. Say if we were walking down a path where we knew full well that there was going to be a lot of insects on this particular path, but we just decided to be careless, you know, because of our craving to get somewhere faster. Uh, and we just, we, we didn't take any precautions to not step on them. We just thought, ah, just, just get there sooner. You know, then would that be unwholesome karma? Um, it all comes down to intent and it all comes down to also discernment and good judgment, right? There is a tradition called Jainism, which Jains, Jainism, they go to excruciating detail to not kill anything ever to the point where they will actually sweep the ground in front of them as they walk. It's excruciating detail with some folks who practice this tradition. This to me is an extreme. This is not the middle way. Okay. That's not the middle way sweeping everywhere you go, everywhere you walk, but also haphazardly walking and deliberately killing beings is not the middle way either. When I walk in the street or I walk on a sidewalk, I just walk. If I notice a collection of ants or a collection of termites, or if I'm walking down the street and I see a scorpion, I just walk to avoid it if I notice it. But if I'm just walking down the street, I'm sure there's an ant or two that ends up under my foot. And that is the gamma of that ant. That ant has been reborn as an ant because of its gamma, and that's why it's an insect. And because it is an insect, and humans and cars and animals, we walk, we just happen to step on that ant and it dies, it's going to be reborn because it's an ant. It, it can't 
attain enlightenment, so it has to be reborn into another existence, either as another animal or some other being, perhaps even human. So you can't go around with excruciating detail trying to avoid every little tiny insect, but you can't haphazardly walk around without awareness and just deliberately kill animals either. So when I walk down the street, I just walk down the street and yes, I know that there's some ant somewhere, but that's its gamma. And I can't practice to the point of sweeping everywhere I go before I show up. That wouldn't be the middle way. Yes, that, that wouldn't work and it wouldn't be helpful to your, your teaching either. There'd, there'd be a cost to that that would mean other people wouldn't benefit. Um, and, and back to what you said earlier about if we were cultivating this anger, then that's going to show up in other ways. So it doesn't mean that if you step on a cockroach, you're going to become one or that you're also going to be, be killed. But, uh, but then we're cultivating something that's unwholesome. And likewise, if we are making an effort to practice loving kindness for all beings, that applies to all beings. So if we're not stepping on uh, insects, then that's only going to help us practice loving kindness outside of that situation as well for, for other people, for other animals, for all beings. Yeah, it's like, you know, when an insect lands on your shoulder, rather than, you know, hitting it with your hand and wiping it off, that comes from a certain place. And that might be what you might be doing now. But if you train the mind to practice this loving kindness, which remember, we're practicing it in meditation, but then practicing it in daily life, what you'll see a lot of people do is they'll swipe it off with their hand or they'll blow it. And that's a practice of loving kindness, active goodwill towards all beings. And if you can practice loving kindness on that level of detail, then to me, it's actually quite easy to practice it with human beings because I'm practicing it down here with this little mosquito who happens to land on me. Now, some people say it's easier to show loving kindness to the mosquito than it is to a person because the person has speech and actions and emotions and facial expressions that kind of draws them in to being more hostile. But what people will tend to do that are practicing these very closely is, you know, they'll just brush off the insect. Or if they have insects in their house, it may take you a little bit longer and a little bit more time, but there's actually ways to remove insects from your house, for example, without actually killing them. And if you spend a little bit of time doing that, you'll be able to, to find ways to, to actually do that. It just takes a little bit more effort than maybe stomping on them or spraying them with some spray that would kill them or, or things of that nature. Or you may decide to relocate things, right? Like if I come across a cockroach somewhere and, and bugs in Thai houses are, are, are so common. You know, in America, if you see a bug, people maybe feel like there's something majorly wrong, but in Thailand you see bugs all the time. So you just kind of relocate them outside and it's not a big deal. And even here in Thailand, geckos, little tiny geckos are really common in the house. There's always three, four, five, ten different geckos somewhere in our house. And you just kind of get used to seeing them and it's just like, okay, they're just sharing our house. <laughs> it's just generosity. We're just sharing our house with the geckos. And it's part of living in Thailand. So when you start looking and, and refining your practice to this level of detail, it can be really beneficial to the mind to do that. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Question from Bill. Bill asks, if there is no self, what is actually being reborn? 
What did the Buddha say was being reborn? What word did he use? I haven't seen exact teachings from what he said was exactly being reborn, but I can share with you what I know through the teachings that I have read and through my own experience. We call it rebirth, but I feel that this word almost isn't really 100% correct because if it's a rebirth, it means there's something that's being reborn. But essentially, it's really the cycle of new existence, right? Each individual existence, whether you're an ant or a snake or a human or a monkey or what have you, it's a new body and a new mind. It's completely new. There's some residual memories that tend to come over from our various births. So there's humans that have observed their past lives. Not everybody that attains enlightenment has that experience, but a lot of people do. And if you observe those past lives, then you know for sure that this cycle of rebirth is real. But those are just residual memories. This consciousness or this mind, this physical body, it's completely new every single time. So it's more, in my mind, best to refer to this as the cycle of new existence because there is nothing that's actually physically being reborn. Yeah, thanks, David. We have no more questions. Okay. Greed craving is antidoted with breathing mindfulness meditation and a daily practice of generosity. Hatred, anger, ill will is antidoted with loving kindness meditation and a daily practice of loving kindness. And then delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality is antidoted by learning and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha in order to acquire wisdom. Okay, so those are the antidotes. Those are the ways to uproot these unwholesome roots. This is the way to extinguish the fire of these three fires. Now let's start focusing on loving kindness meditation because that is the topic for today's talk. Here are some words from Gautama Buddha of where he described how loving kindness meditation should be used in order to remedy this poison of hatred, anger, or ill will. Here he's talking to his son, Rahula. He says, Rahula, develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. So loving kindness is active goodwill towards all beings. And by cultivating this in meditation, you will eliminate this poison of hatred, anger, and this fetter of ill will. And then here's another short little line where he says, loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. He has various teachings that he shares. Remember, all of this was an oral tradition during his lifetime, but he actually taught just by speaking, but then actually people after him, when he died, started writing the teachings down. So they wrote it down based on conversations that he was having with people and things that people heard, and they call them sutras. So I've kind of extracted these lines from various sutras. This next one is from the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And here I'm just kind of describing for you what loving kindness meditation is going to do. I share loving kindness meditation helps us to eliminate hatred, anger, 
ill will, frustration, irritation, annoyances, dislike, and cultivate a mind that has loving kindness or goodwill towards all beings, thus removing the poison of hatred or anger. And then I share, to conduct loving kindness meditation, you should first practice breathing mindfulness meditation to bring the mind to the present moment or singleness of mind, to eliminate unwholesome mental states that may exist in the mind, we first practice breathing mindfulness meditation to eliminate the craving and the holding on to thoughts, ideas, and perceptions. Then we practice loving kindness meditation in order to start cultivating this active goodwill towards all beings. The way that we do that here, what we're going to do is we're going to start with actively cultivating loving kindness for ourselves. Because in order for you to have active goodwill towards other beings, you need to first have it for yourself. And then we'll make rings where we'll go out wider and wider and wider and eventually involving all beings. So with the way that I'll start the meditation is I'll do a chant to kind of focus the mind, kind of bring awareness to the mind, awareness to the breath, ease the mind into meditation, I'll give you some guidance on breathing mindfulness meditation. We'll do that for, you know, however long we end up doing it for. And then I'll start saying these affirmations. May I be peaceful. And when I say that on the out breath, the next out breath, when you breathe out, say that in your mind. May I be peaceful. And then I will say on the next out breath, may I be safe. Say that in the mind, right? Then say, may I be well. And then may I be free of all discontentness and the suffering it causes. So you're cultivating this in the mind quietly with affirmations just for yourself. And then whatever phrase I say next, it will expand this ring out further and further and further. And this is where I think it was Marcia, I was mentioning you can include your mom at some point when you're doing this on your own, you can include your mom in this meditation over and over and over. You might want to first focus on yourself and then go to your mom, go to your family and go broader and broader and broader until you get to all beings. Today, I'll structure this however I decide to structure it. I don't actually know right now because I'm not planning this. I'm just living in the moment and just whatever comes to mind, I'll just say whatever comes to mind. But here you can see from the book, Developing a Life Practice, the path that leads to Nibbana in chapter 11, I just give you kind of three basic rings. May I be peaceful, may we be peaceful, may all beings be peaceful. But you can really create these rings however you like and add a little bit of creativity to it. And then by the time you get to the end, it should be all beings. And then I usually say chant at the end and then I'm done with the meditation. So each time you do this, you can do the same loving kindness meditation or you can kind of change it up and kind of mix it up based on what you need to focus on on that particular day. There were times when I was doing this meditation for many, many years and working with this that 
I might have a certain problem come up. At that time, I was a business owner. I would have a certain customer or a certain employee or maybe a problem with me and my wife was going on. And I felt like I needed to cultivate active goodwill for these particular situations and people that I was interacting with. And I was seeing frustration or irritation arise. And I would include that into my meditation. What's important here is you understand we're not telling other people to be peaceful, safe, well we're not kind of sending this out as a prayer. What we're doing is we're training our mind. So that's why in those situations where I might have had frustration with my wife or an employee or a customer, I was including that into the meditation to train my mind to have more active goodwill and a genuine interest in these people being well. So then the next time I saw that employee or the next time I saw that customer or the next time I saw the wife, my mind had changed. My mind was in a better position and it may take multiple sessions before that gets accomplished. And just like Marcia, I had challenges with my mom as well growing up and I treated her pretty badly at different times. And I needed to train the mind to start treating her better and better and better. And this is one of those things that did that. So this particular meditation is absolutely beneficial. It will absolutely work. When you're doing this on your own, you're not going to say this out loud. The only reason why I'm saying it out loud during our session is because I'm guiding you and helping you to see how to do this meditation. But if I was doing this on my own, you wouldn't know whether I was doing breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation because everything's happening inside the mind. There's no actually audible sound when I'm actually doing this on my own. But here today, I'll do it out loud. So when you hear me say the phrase, you can then say it in your mind. Okay. So any questions on what we're going to be doing during our meditation session? We have no questions at this time. Okay. So I would like to invite you, wherever you are, to just take a seat or stand or lay, whatever position you'd like to take for meditation. Oftentimes it's sitting. If you need to sit on the floor, you might cross your legs or get some other comfortable position. You don't want your legs to be real tight. You want them to be fairly loose so the circulation can flow. If you feel any pain in the body during meditation, just change the position. There's no need to struggle through the pain because all the mind's going to feel is pain. It's going to experience pain. And what we're trying to do is actively train it to eliminate craving or cultivate loving kindness. So if you feel pain, change your body position. So take a position, either sit it on the floor or in a chair. You might have your legs crossed or flat on the floor if you're in a chair, up to you. Your upper body should be in the middle, not slouched, not real rigid, using your muscles to actively engage the upper body. This helps to keep the mind active, attentive, and alert during our meditation session. If I were to lay back in the chair and rest the body and the body becomes too luxurious, then the mind's gonna have a tendency to turn off and become unattentive. So by using your muscles to engage the upper body and keep it erect, 
it tends to keep the mind active, alert, and attentive. Next, place your hands and arms either in your lap, maybe your right hand over top of your left with your thumbs together, and then place them in your lap nice and comfortably, or place your palms on your lap or your palms up, however you'd like to do that. Essentially, make your arms and your hands in a comfortable position where the body is rested and comfortable but not luxurious. Next, just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose and just establish a nice natural breath. I'm going to do some chanting and for those of you guys that know chanting, you're welcome to join along and do chanting. After the chanting, I will be back with you to provide you some guidance on breathing mindfulness meditation and then loving kindness meditation. So either chant along with me or just focus on breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, creating a nice natural breath, and then I'll be with you for some guidance.
Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Nice, natural breath. As you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, focus the mind on the breath. Bring the mind to the breath. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of the air entering the nose. Just bring the awareness to the breath. As the mind goes to the past or to the future, just cut those thoughts off, let them go. Bring the mind to the breath. As there's various thoughts or ideas, perceptions or sounds, sensations in the body, just let them go cut it off. Notice how the thoughts, the sounds, the sensations, they're all impermanent. By focusing on the breath, you can observe how those are impermanent and just cut them off and let them go. I'm going to leave you here focusing on the breath cutting off the thoughts, letting them go. And then I'll come back with some guidance on loving kindness.
Now that we've worked on letting go of the thoughts, eliminating craving, the mind's holding on, working to singleness of mind, emptying the mind. Let's cultivate loving-kindness, active goodwill towards all beings. Continuing to focus on the breath, natural in and out. On your out-breath, repeat the affirmation in the mind. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. free of discontentness in the suffering it causes. peaceful. May we be safe. discontentness and the suffering it causes.
May those close to me be peaceful. May they be safe. free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. May all those who are unknown to me, may they all be peaceful. May they be safe. free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. planet and far, far beyond. May they all be peaceful. safe.
May they be well. May they be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes.
Okay, if you guys would like to come out of meditation. What questions do you guys have based on what we talked about today? The meditation, your meditation practice, anything that we've been discussing in the group learning program that you've been reading, that you've been thinking about, what kind of things can I help you guys with? I have a question, David. So meditation being a tool for purifying the mind of unwholesome states and cultivating wholesome states, why would a fully enlightened being need to continue practicing meditation if they are completely free of these states yeah so they're still going to maintain this good life practice that they have dedicated lots and lots of time to creating they're going to continue to do this in order to maintain their enlightenment so i haven't talked to any Buddy who I would consider enlightened who's ever stopped meditating. I can tell you that their practice will change. It will evolve, right? They won't have to meditate for as long or as frequently or things like loving kindness meditation will fall away. Perhaps everybody does it a little bit differently where when you are first getting your practice going and when you're really in the depth of your practice and when you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment you really need to be on top of your game and you really need to be meditating regularly consistently you really need to be learning the teachings really actively progressing in your practice once you've gotten to the point where you haven't experienced any discontentness at all for a significant period of time I'm talking like six months, one year, two years like this. What you may notice is that you won't meditate as often or as frequently. You may not meditate with loving kindness meditation because you've soaked the teachings so deeply into the mind. They've become so ingrained that you don't have to do things like what Bill talked about, where he like stepped away from the counter and he had to go calm his mind down. An enlightened being is going to just go with the flow that everything is just so rooted all these good wholesome practices are so now well rooted in the mind that there's no thinking or contemplating or pondering about what should i do in this situation what should i do in that situation you've done it so many times that now you've trained your mind with this wisdom that it just functions in a completely different way than it used to in the past but you're still going to practice some amount of meditation because that's what led you to this point you're going to maintain the clarity you're going to maintain the focus the concentration you know it's like this it's like when you were first born you were hungry and you were giving food and you realized that every time you ate food it made you stronger it made your stomach not hurt and it sustained your life Meditation is like food or medicine for the mind. It sustains the mind. It maintains the mind. 
So just like you're going to have to always eat food your entire life, you're going to always meditate. But during that period in your adolescence, in your early adulthood where you were growing a lot and you were evolving your physical body, you had to eat a lot more. But as you get older, you eat less and less and less and less. Meditation's essentially the same way. During that period where you're really actively training your mind the most, you may dedicate longer and longer and longer periods to accumulate the results of meditation. But then as the results become more and more obvious, more and more clear, the brightness of the enlightened mind starts to shine through. What you'll notice is that you'll need to meditate less and less and less but you're still going to always maintain meditation just like you're always going to eat. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I suppose that in the same way that a fully enlightened being would be incapable of breaking a, a precept, for example, they'd be incapable of committing murder, for example, not physically incapable, but because the mind is just constantly making wholesome choices in every moment. It has no reason to it. It wouldn't ever choose to. In the same way, I imagine a fully enlightened being can never go backwards. It's not that it, because, because the mind would never be capable of doing something that would allow it to become attached, that would allow it to regress. Because if they were, they wouldn't be fully enlightened. So I suppose in the same way, they will always choose to meditate when it is right and wholesome to do so because they're always making these wholesome decisions. So it's just part of that practice. So it's not that they... Um, need to to prevent the risk of attachment it's just that they're just doing what's right in every moment you know, they would never become attached because they would never ever see the value in it good way to think about it max that's a perfect way to describe it good thank you yeah i think i'm clear yeah uh, we have a question on um sorry we have a question on facebook from william william asks i was warned not to do meditation for longer than 15 minutes is this true and can I also read Zen koans to help understand Buddha's teachings? So let's talk about the meditation one first. Is th there's nothing that would preclude anyone from doing more than 15 minutes worth of meditation a day or at a session. It's not going to cause any problems. In fact, I met a enlightened monk here in Thailand who meditated for seven days around the clock continuously, 24 hours a day for seven days without eating, without drinking, without anything for seven days continuously. And he's enlightened. It doesn't mean that everyone has to do that to attain enlightenment, but that was just part of what he did as part of his path. So you shouldn't limit yourself to 15 minutes. In fact, from my experience, the closer you get to 30 minutes, the better. I wouldn't say stop at 30 minutes. I wouldn't say beat yourself up if you don't get to 30 minutes. But just from my observation, the closer you get to 30 minutes, the more benefit it seems like that I experience. So falsely stopping at 15 minutes, that's not true. That's not correct. I suggest that you let that go and don't follow that advice. In terms of studying Zen or Mahayana or Vajrayana teachings, these are all different traditions of Buddhist teachings. 
These are all traditions that came long after Gautama Buddha died. His teachings are most closely to what he actually taught in the Theravada tradition, which is what I'm teaching as part of what I share. Theravada means teachings of the elders. After he died, various factions, you know, started splitting off after so many hundreds of years. You know, the, the initial group stayed together for a period of time. But then because of impermanence, various groups started splitting off and creating different things. And Mahayana Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, all these different Buddhisms have been spun off. And there's tons of them out there now. These are all not what Gautama Buddha taught. They may have some resemblance. They may have a little bit of Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or one thing or another that kind of make them appear that they are Buddhism and they call themselves Buddhism because they're meditating and they're practicing certain things. But from my experience, all of these various traditions have been created long after the Buddha's death. What I see them sharing and teaching are not what is part of the Theravada tradition that I know 100% leads to enlightenment. And you might see prayer or worship, or you might see a different variation of the idea of discontentness. They might use the word suffering. They might say that other people cause you to suffer, which I've seen that in some teachings, which is not true at all. Other people aren't causing you to, to experience suffering. I've seen all kinds of different variations of things. And one way to make sure that you get utterly confused and hinder your progress to enlightenment is to start mixing different traditions and start mixing around and try to practice different traditions. If you want to confuse yourself and make sure that you create a lot of obstacles, that would be the one sure way to do it. The best way is to find a teacher that you feel has some very good teachings that can help improve the quality of your mind. Perhaps you might even feel that this teacher is enlightened themselves. Spend time with that teacher learning what they have to share with you over an extended period of time and observe if your mind is improving, if the condition of your mind is improving. Are you seeing that your mind's going from anger to frustration to irritation to annoyance to I feel nothing on various topics? Are you noticing things are improving? And if you spend time with a teacher, you should notice this with their teachings. If you're not noticing it, you need to talk to them and help them understand what's not working and, and get some clarification. The other thing about picking a teacher, not only look for someone you feel that you can learn from, someone you maybe feel is enlightened, look for someone who's modeling the teachings. Whatever they're teaching, you should see them practicing that. So if they're teaching right speech to be polite, kind, friendly, you should see that. If they're teaching you how to eliminate anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, you should see them. They're never annoyed. They're never frustrated. They're never irritated. You should see this kindness and this respect and this gratitude, this loving kindness, this compassion. The other thing you should see is you should see that they should be able to show you how the teachings are true without belief. None of the teachings that Gautama Buddha taught are based on belief. So if somebody's sharing something with you and it's based on belief and you can't independently prove that it's the truth, 
then it's not Gautama Buddha's teachings because every single thing that he taught, you can practice it and observe that it's the truth. So for example, when I teach the Four Noble Truths, I teach the Four Noble Truths, but then I show you how to determine that it's truth and you can investigate it for yourself. When I teach the Eightfold Path, I teach it to you and I show you exactly how you can practice it and determine that it's truth for yourself. When I talk about gamma, when I talk about all of these topics, I show you very clearly how you can see it for yourself. So if you want to make yourself really confused, you know, people sometimes go out and learn all these different traditions. They jump from teacher to teacher to teacher, book to book to book to book and session to session to session. This is for sure going to cause complications. But if you can stay within the Theravada tradition, specifically even learning with one particular teacher for six months, a year, you should see within the first two, three, four months. Even I've had students in the first two or three days of studying, they tell me they can see changes in their mind just in two or three days. So you should be able to see pretty readily that this teacher is and these teachings are improving the condition of the mind. And that's how you know you're on the right path and what you're learning and what you're practicing is actually working. Yes, we have a comment from Amina saying thank you, first of all, and, and thank you for the clarification about just focusing on the breath and this very simple instruction, cut off thoughts. I'd like to ask a follow-up actually, which is that when we sit down to bed and say, should we just get straight to the breath? And the reason I ask is because I have done other guided meditations in the past. When I started a few years ago, I was using an app and often in those meditations, they would start by, okay, now pay attention to sounds and then pay attention to um, do a, the body, do a body scan, and then eventually they get to the breath. But these days, I'm more following your instruction, which is just cut it off, just focus on the breath. And I have found that to be very effective, but I'd just be interested to know your thoughts on the timing of the meditation, the staging of it, if there is any, and whether you just get straight to the breath. Yeah, for me, I just get straight to the breath. Just cut off the thoughts, just let them go. All this other stuff, it could be helpful for other people. And if they're teaching that, it must be helpful for them. But for me, I've never done that type of meditation. And I've always found that in the Buddhist teachings, what he said very clearly is just cut off the thoughts. He never said, focus on the sound, focus on the lights, focus on this, focus on that because that's just allowing the mind to drift and wander and kind of take you on a ride. What you want to do is just get right to the breath. And, you know, it take, that's why I gave you guys at the beginning of this meditation, you know, a couple of minutes to really settle in before I actually started even giving guidance. That's why I use chanting to kind of lead into meditation. That's why once you get in meditation, I kind of take it really slow and just kind of some slow guidance. Then I gave you a nice little period to just really focus on the breath. Then we just gradually moved into loving kindness meditation. And then even after loving kindness meditation, just sitting there for a bit and just letting all that soak in and then going into the chanting and then going into the end of the meditation. So in the breathing mindfulness meditation, just get right to the breath. And then once you've established that, go right into the loving kindness meditation and whatever period of breathing mindfulness meditation you use is totally up to you. However long you feel that that's needed prior to loving kindness. 
And there were certainly times where I just sat down and did loving kindness meditation as well. But I always noticed that my mind was cluttered and it was like there was a, a brick wall and I was trying to get this loving kindness cultivated and there's just this brick wall. So doing breathing mindfulness meditation first really cleared all that out and then allowed the active goodwill, the loving kindness to come through. So I would suggest just getting to the breath and then moving into loving kindness if that's what you're going to do. Great, thanks. Yes, and I think referring back to William's question about the length of the meditation, I think it's not necessarily surprising if for the first moment you've sat down, you've literally just sat down, the mind's going to be more busy, it's going to gradually get more and more focused and calmer. And sometimes that first few minutes, well, I know in my case, I'd be interested to know your thoughts, David, but it's almost just like allowing the mind to quieten. Mm-hmm. So there is effort, and I am focused on the breath, but there's also just this understanding that if I just do this for long enough, the mind is naturally going to quieten down. You know, I don't really need to do anything per se. Yes, gently bring the focus to the breath, but the, I, I tend to play around with the effort a little bit. So maybe like gradually increase the effort as I feel that it's naturally quietening down. Yeah, just naturally. Just, just naturally. I mean, if it's working for you, it's working for you. Just naturally focus on the breath and allow the breath to be your anchor. Your your breath is that fixed position that you're fixing your mind on the breath and allow that to be your anchor. Something you're reminding me of, Max, is there are certainly times where I sat down to meditate, and my intention was to do breathing mindfulness meditation and or add loving kindness meditation. And when I sat down, I realized within two minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, wow, there's just way too much thoughts here. And I decided to switch and do walking meditation. And I did that for 30 minutes or an hour. And then I came back to try to do breathing my, or I didn't, I just kept doing walking meditation. Whereas if the mind's craving, if the mind's attached, if the mind's holding on and it wants to do loving kindness meditation, you can sit down and kind of feel like you're forcing it. And you should never be in a position where you're forcing it. So there were certainly plenty of times where I sat down and I felt like the mind was just too busy, too cluttered. There was too much energy there. And the best plan of action here is just to get up and go do walking meditation. And that comes from not being attached to doing seated meditation, to doing breathing mindfulness meditation, and attached to doing loving kindness meditation. You might have a certain intention for your meditation session that's coming up, but you can't even be attached to meditation, right? You can't even have craving because if you have craving for meditation, the mind's going to be discontent. Like you're just going to sit there and be angry of why your thoughts are so busy and why your mind's so busy. Well, your mind's busy because you're not enlightened yet. You know, that, that's an obvious. And your mind was really calm for the last three weeks and now it's busy. Okay, it's impermanent. The mind's impermanent. No big deal. What an enlightened being is going to do is, is look for solutions. They're not going to see things in their life as problems. They're always going to be looking for solutions. So whether it's like Bill going to the hospital and the person says, sorry, we don't have your information anymore you're going to immediately start looking for solutions. Okay, well, how do we fix this? What do you need? Or you sit down and meditate and the mind's too busy. Okay, what's the solution here? Let me go do some walking meditation. Or you sit down and your back hurts. Okay, what's the solution here? 
lying meditation, standing meditation. The, an enlightened mind is always going to be looking at solutions, and with the wisdom that they've cultivated, they're going to always be able to find those solutions. Yes, yes. That was one of the things I found, actually, with the guided meditations, was that as useful as they were for that grounding, they didn't allow for that flexibility mid-meditation, and actually... A lot of it is about that. It's about responding to the needs of the moment. You know, what is it that my meditation is calling on right now? Uh, Maybe may the mind is just too busy. Maybe I do need to emphasize the cutting off thoughts. Right. right. And what you said there by being in the moment, right, is like what's needed at that moment. That's why we bring our mind into the present moment. And that's why, going back to Bill's example, it's such a great example as he shows up at the hospital. It's what's needed in that moment to allow us to walk forward, right? What's needed is we need you to fill out these three forms. Okay, got it. Bada bing, bada boom, here's the three forms. You sit down in meditation, you realize the mind's busy or your back hurts or whatever it is. What's needed in this moment to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy? Perhaps my intention was to do seated, loving kindness meditation, but in this moment, the body is impermanent, it doesn't feel comfortable sitting here. The mind's too busy. Let me do walking meditation. So that's why bringing the mind into the present moment and always making the right decision in that present moment, whether it's about meditation or a visit to the hospital or some friend starts being hostile and angry with you or whatever it is, just one decision at a time. This is where singleness of mind becomes very beneficial. Yes, and that's when we're acting in a wholesome way and not just being guided by craving, not just being bound by what the mind wants at that moment, but actually with mindfulness and right effort deciding that what is actually conducive to peace of mind here. And it may be that we've got to clean up some mess from some decision we made five years ago. Exactly. <laughs> and that may be what we need to do. <laughs> but, we, but we see that and go, well, that's happening because that, that is my karma. This right. Is what I need to do now. And this is why if the mind is holding on to the past or it's holding on to the future and it has certain expectations, if you're in the present moment and the mind has this craving for something in the future, it might start making all these bad decisions that it thinks are going to be beneficial. And it's making these decisions off of the craving for this future experience. And that's why the unwholesome root of craving leads to unwholesome gamma. Because if we allow the mind to crave that future experience and we start making all these decisions based on that, then they're oftentimes going to be the wrong decision. Whereas if we're just in the present moment and focus on the present moment, now we're making very beneficial decisions based on this present moment. I can't make decisions based on three weeks from now, three years from now, or even three hours from now. I need to make what is the right decision in this exact moment? And if you do that, we can always produce wholesome gamma. But it's really challenging because in the Western world, we're taught to have this five-year, 10-year plan. We're taught to make incremental milestones. We're taught to kind of plan out our whole life and work backwards and develop this life plan that's going to ultimately get to where we need to be in 20 years from now. But that never works out. People become very frustrated with that and it becomes very problematic. Whereas if you hold in your mind, okay, I would like to, you know, just say you're, you're 16 years old or 20 years old, 
you know, I'd like to be a doctor, and that means I need to go to undergrad school, I need to go to master's, I need to get a PhD, I need to have a residency, I need to have all these different things. So that's my objective. So every decision I make is gonna be working in that direction. But if something changes along the way, then having the freedom to be able to do that, then the mind won't be discontent. But if we put ourselves into this fixed, rigid planning structure that Western culture tends to teach, then we kind of lock ourselves in and now things become very discontent because we feel almost like we're in a straitjacket where the mind is unenlightened, it's unliberated. Whereas if you liberate yourself from the past and the future and all these thoughts and ideas, now you can live in the present moment and you just make whatever decisions right in the present moment and the mind's liberated because you just do what's right right now. Great stuff. Okay, so we have uh, one more question from Jaroslav. And Jaroslav asks, is there any particular time of day to meditate? He says, I found myself performing better meditations in the mornings when the mind is clearer than at the end of the day. Yeah, so this is truth, right? So this is great that you've decided to meditate in the morning and meditate in the evening and you see the difference in results for you. And since you see that, then you stick with that. And what you might notice is as time progresses, you might notice that all of a sudden evenings are a good time and you might try to do that again. So if the morning is working for you, stick with it, but don't be attached to it. Don't hold on to it too tightly because you might notice that other times of the day might start working out for you better as well. And also, you might want to expand beyond just once a day. You might want to try twice a day or three times a day. Gautama Buddha meditated three times a day. But I agree that for me, morning is a great opportunity to meditate. The phone isn't ringing. People aren't around. You've just woken up. The mind's pretty rested, so it's not sleepy. And you can get a really good meditation session in to kind of set up your day and prepare you for the day. I also find that midday is also really helpful because it kind of like resyncs everything and makes sure that you finish off the rest of your day really well. So if you've meditated in the morning and some challenging things have happened, there's nothing wrong with meditating in the middle of the day as well. And then I've also found that the evening works out really well too to kind of bring the mind down and kind of ease it into sleep. So the best thing to do is try all of these times and then maybe you kind of center on one particular time like you have in the morning, but leave your mind open to meditating at other times as well. Don't allow it to latch on and stay attached to only meditating in the morning because you might find that you need it at other times as well. And if you leave your mind open to that, then you'll have other options as well. So to me, I feel like any time of day is a good time to meditate. But I agree that morning and evening tend to be some really good times. And the more frequently you meditate, you'll notice more benefits. So as we were talking about how if you want to get into some really intense training, you may decide to do morning and evening or morning, midday and evening. And that would be really fruitful for you. The amount of time may change as well. You may decide to do longer in the morning, shorter in the evening, or you may decide to just do one really long morning session and that's it. You may decide to do one evening session and that's it. There's no 
special recipe. There's no special combination of when to meditate, how long to meditate. These are all common questions that people ask. The goal is to meditate and accumulate the benefits. I often talk about meditation as an empty bucket and you're scooping water into this bucket. So if your bucket's empty and you're thirsty, when is a good time to scoop water into this bucket? Should I only scoop water in the morning? Should I only scoop water in the middle of the day? Or should I only scoop water in the evening? And should I only scoop water for five minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes? Well, the answer is your bucket's empty. You're thirsty. You scoop as much water as you can whenever you can. And this is why back to William's question about only meditating for 15 minutes. Well, if I'm thirsty and I'm standing there in front of a big trough of water, am I only going to scoop water for 15 minutes and stop? And that's not good. Or should I just keep scooping for as long as I can? And the answer is keep scooping for as long as you can, as frequently as you can, and as much as you can. And while you're scooping, scoop very patiently, very steadily, very calmly, making sure every little drip gets into the bucket, right? You don't want to hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I got to meditate. Hurry up. Let's get home. Hurry up. I got to meditate. <laughs> you don't want to hurry up to meditate, right? So take your time, take lots of scoops whenever you can, as frequently as you can, and for as long as you can. There's no secret recipe for when you should scoop this water or how much of it you should scoop or for what amount of time. Just keep scooping water and keep filling up that bucket. We have a question from Manal on Facebook. He asks, I've noticed plenty of thoughts entering my mind while in meditation. I do try to realign myself back onto the breath, but what do you mean by cutting off your thoughts? I've understood that if you acknowledge the thoughts which enter, they would naturally subside. If you cut your thoughts out, wouldn't that be very temporary? You probably haven't heard my talk on the Eightfold Path. Part of the Eightfold Path, the sixth step is called right effort, where you're eliminating unwholesome qualities from the mind and you're cultivating wholesome qualities in the mind. And essentially what this is, is as you feel anger coming up in the body during daily life, you apply right effort to eliminate that, eliminate that frustration or eliminate that anger or that frustration. You cut it off. Well, I know that there's places that teach that as you're in meditation and certain thoughts arise, you acknowledge the thought, you label the thought, you look at the thought, and then you allow it to pass. This isn't the way that I suggest that you meditate. This isn't the way that I saw in Gautama Buddha's teachings that he suggested to meditate. Because essentially, if you allow that thought to come into the mind in meditation, you look at the thought, you analyze the thought, you judge the thought, you label the thought, then you let it pass, then essentially that's what happens when anger arises or frustration or irritation arises. You look at the anger, you analyze the anger, you label the anger, and then you let it pass. Essentially, it's made its way into the mind and then it passed perhaps. But what you want to do through training the mind to cut off thoughts or let them go is you want to get to the point where in daily life you can actually cut off anger before it even comes into the mind. Why allow the anger, the frustration, the irritation to get to the mind, 
look at the mind, observe that it's anger, label it as anger, and then let it pass. The goal is to eliminate this anger from the mind and don't even let it come into the mind. So if we've got this clean bucket of water that we're trying to scoop water into it, and somebody's coming with some poison to drop it into the water, oh, there's some poison. Look at that poison. Here he comes. He's going to put poison into my water. Oh, look, he put poison into my water. There it is. Now my water's all got poison in it. Now I got to figure out how to get it out. Let me label this poison and let me figure out how to get this poison in my water. Hmm. Okay, that's one way to do it but you just ruined all your water you've been scooping. Your mind has now got that poison. Or, oh, here comes somebody with poison. Let me cover my bucket and cut it off so he doesn't put poison into my water. That's cutting off the thought. So why allow that to come into the mind? Cut it off, let it go. So then if you're doing that in meditation, you can then do that in daily life. That's why we cut off thoughts. That's why we let them go before they actually come into the mind or when we see them come into the mind. If we observe the thought coming into the mind and we label it, we experience it, we let it pass, that's like allowing somebody to put poison into the water and then trying to get it out afterwards. You should put the lid on the bucket. Don't let anybody put the poison in. That's cutting it off. And to follow up for me, David, so my understanding as well as speaking of right effort is that we are abandoning the unwholesome state of craving because there is this craving for the thoughts, whatever it may be. There's also the second stage of, I should say, the second part of right effort, which is preventing unwholesome states from arising. And so a lot of thinking is habit. A lot of thinking isn't useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so is it fair to say that by abandoning in the moment, abandoning the unuseful thought, we are also reducing the propensity for similar thoughts to come back. So we're also exactly. facing the future arising. Exactly, because when you do this meditation enough where you're cutting off the thoughts and you're letting them go, and eventually you start eradicating this craving where the mind holds onto the thought, as you get this underway, you're going to have experiences like what Bill had where he did feel the frustration he felt it arise and then he had to step out to eliminate it. But eventually you get to the point where if you've cut it off enough times over multiple months and years, eventually it doesn't even come to the mind at all. Eventually that guy that's coming with the poison, every time he sees you put the lid on the bucket, eventually he realizes he can't put poison in your bucket and he stops bothering you. He stops coming. He, he doesn't even come to your village anymore because every time I show up, that guy keeps putting the lid on the bucket and I can't even get poison into his bucket. So eventually the anger just stops arising. The frustration stops arising. But you have to do this enough times that you see that benefit. Whereas if you allow it to come into the mind, then it's like every time he gets poison into the bucket, he's just going to keep coming. Yeah, we're not really with, with that method you wouldn't really be applying right effort to prevent the future arising. Yeah. That and one of the things I would like to share, and I'm really glad that this question came up, is I realize that what I'm sharing is different than maybe what you've learned in the past. And to me, that's a really good thing. 
If you've landed in a class where somebody's teaching you something that you don't know and that you haven't experienced and you haven't heard before, that's a really good thing because now you can take what I'm sharing with you now. Don't believe me. Don't don't believe me that this works. You go practice what I just shared with you about cutting off the thoughts and letting them go and practice this loving kindness meditation. Do it for two weeks, for two months, and you see the results for yourself because you know right now that you're not enlightened and anything that you're currently practicing means that that stuff's got to change. If you hold on to what you're currently practicing, then you're holding on to the unenlightened mind. So if you know you're currently unenlightened and you're learning things that you haven't seen before, then give them a try. Try them for two weeks, for four weeks, for two months. See the benefits and the results. And if they work for you, you use it. So I'm really glad that this came up because this is a common teaching that I hear that people have learned other places. And I think it's a really good thing that you've learned something new now. And now you can go practice it and see if this is the truth or not. I know it's the truth because I saw it in the Buddhist teachings, but I didn't believe the Buddha. So don't believe me. Don't believe the Gautama Buddha. So when I read it in his teachings, I didn't believe him. I went and did it. And then when I saw it working, then I saw it working. And I know that this is the truth because it came from his teachings and I saw it work for myself. Then I started teaching it to students. And then all the students were telling me it's working for me too. And then Thai people who are in Thailand who study with really well-known monks who are known to be enlightened in the community, when they asked me, what do I teach for meditation? And I told them, they said, oh, that's the same thing I learned from this monk who everybody knows is enlightened. So I confirmed for me, I know the truth because I confirmed it in Gautama Buddha's teachings. That's where I got my initial exposure to it. I practiced it for myself, saw it worked. I shared it with students, it worked for them. And then Thai people have confirmed for me that they learned the same thing from monks that are known to be enlightened. So I know it's truth, but you have to know it's truth. It doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter if I know it's the truth. You need to attain enlightenment by doing the work. So if you practice this, you'll see that it's the truth and it works. If for some reason you're noticing it's not working after a week or two or three, come back to me and let's talk about it because there may be something that you're misunderstanding and I would like to help you with that so that you can get the correct information so that you can see that this is the truth and this actually works. Yeah, it's a great question. It comes up fairly frequently. I think I mean, we were discussing this one point before. I think sometimes the confusion arises because we're trying to see things clearly. You know, part of the results of meditation is that we can see things more clearly. But I remember you said before, David, that basically if, if your mind's full of discursive thought, you know, good luck trying to see things clearly, right? Yeah. Um, the worst of that effect. Because first you've got to clear that out and then seeing things clearly will, will come. Yeah. And that's why I also shared, you know, for this person, if it's not working for some reason, come back and talk to me some more because in the unenlightened state, the mind is cluttered. The Buddha called it muddle mindedness. The mind is cluttered. So that's why I repeat these teachings a lot of times over repetitive times. So it really starts to soak in more and more. And the more that you meditate and apply these teachings, the mind will start to clear out. 
and then you can absorb more and more of these teachings and you can memorize more and more of these teachings. So if you're in these sessions on a regular basis and you're practicing what I'm sharing, you might need to ask a question a few times or you may need to hear the teaching a few times before it really soaks in and you actually can apply it and see the real results. So if there's something that you misunderstand or see something that's not working for you, come back and talk to me again so that I can clarify something. It, it may be something that you misunderstood or maybe you're not applying in the way that I would suggest. Speaking of learning, that's a great lead into William's question. William asks, should I do meditation to learn new things effectively? I'm trying to learn about biology so I can get a degree in it. That's the beauty of Gautama Buddha's teachings. By learning Gautama Buddha's teachings and developing this life practice, training the mind in this way, the mind becomes more focused, more concentrated, more clear, you get more memory, which means every other thing that you wanna do in life, it becomes more accessible, almost more easy, more fluid for you. So if you're getting a degree in biology and whatever else you choose to do in your life, whether it's get a husband or a wife or children or be a business person, whatever you choose to do, by improving the quality of your mind, through these teachings and meditation and all the other teachings, you're only going to see good, wholesome results in all other parts of your life, whatever you decide to do. Great, thanks David, that's all of our questions. Okay, well we've had a very deep talk today, which is great. We've been talking for actually two hours and 40 minutes, which includes the meditation. So I wanna thank you guys for all your wonderful questions for deciding and choosing to actually learn and practice these teachings. By learning and practicing these teachings, it's the very best thing you could ever do for yourself, for those close to you, and all of humanity. Because by you improving the quality of your mind, it means that you're doing less and less harmful things, and those people around you are going to experience less and less harm, and that means the world is gonna experience less and less harm. So thank you so much for choosing to practice these teachings. Until next time, be safe, enjoy learning, enjoy your practice, keep meditating. And then on Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time, we're gonna be moving to the next chapter of our book, which is chapter 15, where we're gonna be discussing the difficult human existence of sickness, aging, and death. And we're going to be discussing how to deal with these. And we're going to be discussing the life story of Gautama Buddha and how he observed these things, which were motivators for him to actually pursue enlightenment, attain it, and then share these wonderful teachings with all of us. So until then, enjoy your day, have a wonderful time, and be well. May you be safe. May you be free of discontentness and the suffering that it causes. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.